Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Uh, Thomas, we just wrapped up a fascinating interview with Taylor Black, who I think has maybe the coolest job in the entire world. Do you want to summarize a little bit and uh, kick us off here? Yeah, he says he works with startup companies from stage zero to stage one. Um, this is the really messy front end of a startup. This is a, this is the point where you take uh, all these loose pieces and crazy ideas and try to pull them together and try to make sense out of them. And it seems like he has uh, become an expert at doing that. Uh, and you're right. I think this is actually the coolest job in the world, but it's not designed for everybody. That's for sure. <laughs> no, that's true. It's it's really, it's really hardcore. You have to have a really high octane mind and he obviously does. But basically the idea is they have in-house teams of experts like scientists or artists or engineers former founders, and they just come up with awesome ideas for meta materials that can do really interesting things with different kinds of signals. Uh, he talks about golf ball manufacturing, uh, a couple of other things like that. So it's just, he casts this huge net, deep tech all over the place, right? And they ideate internally and then wrap companies around that, spin them off and then get a little equity. So it's like before it's like, I get between angel investing and, and proper venture capital, maybe, but it's in this like messy part where the the ideas are just getting off the ground. That uh, yeah, it's I didn't even know people did that exactly. Yeah, so he he talks about uh, the the minimum viable product, but then he wants um, uh, somehow to prove out um, what what they have there, and that's always involves getting customers involved, right. and that's that's the critical part. Once you can involve customers at a really early stage of the game, then you can you have all this data that you can start working on that they like this, but they don't like that, and right. this didn't make sense over here. And so, yeah, I think uh, he's really perfected this into a real interesting system that he uses. Yeah, I agree. It was it was really really cool. He's very insightful. He he thinks a lot about you know, how the process works, how people discover new things, how that knowledge gets productized. And I just thought his whole approach was was very fascinating. And hopefully you will find it fascinating as well. So without further ado, this is our interview with Taylor Black. Tonight, we're joined by Taylor Black. Taylor is a cross-functional team leader and seasoned entrepreneur passionate about driving innovation and growth. As a co-founder of Fizzy Ventures and a principal program manager at Microsoft Incubation Studio, Taylor has been at the forefront of entrepreneurial ecosystems, venture studios, and technology and business model innovation. Thanks to this remarkable background, Taylor's expertise is sought after by founders, corporate innovators, venture accelerators, incubators, and studios alike. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today. 
Yeah, sure. So I've uh, kind of been in the startup space for a long time. Um, you know, did the proverbial lemonade stand, ran a company when I was an undergrad, um, started a tech company while I was in law school, ended up doing that instead of becoming an attorney. Um, and since uh, selling my company in 2014, I've been involved in the venture builder space, which is really kind of uh, venture capital applied to building companies at very early stages from kind of the zero to one. Um, I've done that at Intellectual Ventures. I've done, uh, I'm currently doing that inside of Microsoft and the CTO's office. Um, and I've also uh, helped a number of different venture studios along the way. I love it when I can help entrepreneurs do what they do faster and better by taking away the obstacles that aren't key to the core of their business so that they can just run with their idea. So you're you, like a force multiplier. On, yeah. You focus on the messy front end then. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's a messy front end. It's all the operational stuff. It's all the oh, my attorney told me X, Y, Z. It's like no, let's let's smooth out the running the running path these entrepreneurs have. They're solving a problem that they understand their customer has. They have a solution that they really want to bring to market. Let's take all the extraneous stuff like formation, like ops, like HR, like finance out of that equation, so that they're able to get to product market fit as soon as possible. Yeah, okay. that's the that most people hate. Uh, so I'm glad we have people like you that love that area. <laughs> it's a good way so, to stay in business. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. I, well, so I have a couple of follow-up questions. I, I'd like to get a little bit clearer on the actual kinds of companies you've built. We were talking about this a little bit before, so we can put some kind of meat on those bones and, and understand sure. that a little bit better. And then I'm also sort of curious about you know what the day-to-day -day of your work is like. So it sounds like you just you know, you look at the plate and you take a bunch of stuff off of it, right? And it's like, you're not even, you're, you're building the company, you're not building the product, but I'm kind of curious as to you know, how into the tech you get and all that sort of stuff. So just feel free to riff on on that. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, my first like real company, aside from, you know, the yard work business I had when I was in high school, um, it was a company that bought up a bunch of properties around my undergraduate institution um, and then turned each of them into, into an LLC and allowed people to buy into the LLC and become fractional property owners rather than renters, which dropped my property management costs a whole lot because people could sell out at a higher rate than they actually bought in. Uh, similar to a company called Picasso, except I was working in college real estate rather than um, high-end vacation homes. Uh, in second thought, I should have started with the high-end vacation homes, but uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, uh, after that, I started a, uh, a web design and development agency. Uh, I taught myself to program uh, in high school and kind of use that to pay the bills through, through undergrad. Um, and did a, a bunch of different uh, design and development work for Fortune 500 companies, for mom and pop shops, for universities. Um, as, we, as the agency grew and I was going to grad school, we realized that we had a certain um, specialty around a, a niche of uh, learning management systems. Um, then this is back in the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s. Um, and so we developed a B2B SaaS product that allowed uh, you know individuals, um, universities, uh, anybody who wanted to deliver content online and own their platform and not have to charge, uh, you know, pay a platform fee. Uh, to to stand up their own learning management system. Um, ran that for a couple of years while I was in law school, graduated law school, decided that the tech route was um, a lot more fun and a lot more lucrative, um, and ended up selling that B2B SaaS LMS company in uh, 2014. 
Um, after that, I went into business intelligence for about a year and a half, uh, taking a lot of the data side that I had learned in building the B2B SaaS company, um, uh, but also really started getting into venture studios at that point in time. Uh, venture studios, for those who may not know, are kind of uh, uh, venture firms that spend a lot of hands-on time helping the entrepreneur de-risk the idea, uh, rapidly prototype to something that starts to find some customer traction, um, and then build it to a minimum viable product that they're then able to launch as a kind of Series A sort of startup. Um, because of my background in biochemistry and in construction in a variety of different areas, um, I've been kind of sector agnostic for almost all of my career. Um, I started in kind of deep tech, uh, working with the Invention Science Fund, which is one of the funds of intellectual ventures. Um, we spun out companies in nuclear technology and metamaterials and biomedical devices and deep physics applications that I don't quite even understand, superconductivity, uh, and things like golf balls and things that were more <laughs> um, uh, mundane as well. Yeah. Uh, 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 and and we spun a lot of companies out there. A number of them are still still doing very well and um, uh, growing and then launching satellites and building reactors in Wyoming and that sort of thing. Um, so so how do how do you get paid for the service you provide? Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. To talk talk to us about the business side. I was going to ask that same question. Certainly yeah yeah. So venture studios generally take a fairly large chunk of the cap table early on. Knowing one, knowing that they're going to be diluted quite a bit, um, and two, uh, generally they co-create the intellectual property with the founders themselves within the studio, um, and then a portion of the studio team, along with some uh, outside folks that they've hired in, take that nascent idea and project once it's fleshed out within the studio, and that becomes the company and the founder and and uh, the. Venture Studio takes, you know, between 15 to sometimes even 30, depending on the kind of technology, uh, percents of the cap table. Okay, then it gets fairly okay. diluted. And so you're black swan farming in, in Paul Graham's phrase. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, does it work out that way? Like a lot of them end up fizzling out, but, you know, there are a couple of Facebooks in there and that's what it pays for everything. It does, yeah. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's a similar model uh, to, to all of VC. Uh, the idea is that you're further up the the value chain so that you're able to work through thousands of ideas uh, or really tens of thousands of ideas um, before you get to prototype rather than focusing on the, you know, five to 10 to 100 uh, startups that most VCs might um, might invest in in a particular in a particular year. So, so you're calling it a lot earlier, right? When you're deciding when when, when startups are coming through that filter earlier, you said uh, you're looking for you're trying to find zero to one companies. So how do you do that? We, we've talked to a couple of venture capitalists, you know, on this show, and, and they've talked to us a little bit about how they form a thesis and uh, what that process is like. So what, what's it like for you? How do, how do you decide which ones to bet on? Yeah, for us, it's a very much we're all builders. Yeah, there aren't very many people who are just um, finance focused in uh, general venture capital firms. All of us have been founders. All of us have built companies from the ground up. And so we know a lot of the mistakes that you can make and how to avoid them. Um, and so what we're really just trying to prove out in the end is that product market fit. We don't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, founder and co-founder relations because we are that's something we've solved in a previous life. Uh, we don't have to worry about, oh, we didn't, you know, we didn't uh, file that form at the right time. 
oh, we got hosed because we had this kind of investor come in. There's just a whole set of questions that are common to the startup, like starting a venture sort of space that are solved questions. And we're able to focus on the technology proving out and finding that uh, product market fit um, without of all, all of that extraneous uh, barriers to entry in that space. Additionally, too, it allows us a whole lot of access to really high quality capital um, because it's coming from a firm of people who have done this before. Uh, you know, as a result, our Series A, our Series B companies uh, have an easier time raising because they're coming out of a place that's kind of given their stamp of approval on the way in which things were set up and how much this company has been de-risked as a result. So how booked up are you at the moment? Uh, booked up? Yeah. I mean, if if we showed up on your doorstep with three business plans, uh, is that too much for you? No. So the interesting thing is most venture studios don't accept applications. Oh. We, come up, we come up with our own ideas. Uh, we, yep. Okay. We co-create with other uh, with other teams, um, but it's important that we uh, start with ownership of the IP rather than firms coming to us. It's another way of also ensuring that we're working with teams that we really uh, have vetted through. We're working with initial ideas that we have a lot of understanding and, and uh, knowledge about the the IP process. Um, and as a result, like we don't app, uh, operate like a venture capital firm where they they contribute capital to those th to ideas that already exist, whereas we come up with the initial ideas themselves. Ah, okay. So, so you hire teams around the ideas. Like you come up with an idea for golf balls or meta materials, and then you say, "Who's who could put together the manufacturing? Who could do the marketing?" You like grow a team yep. around it. Exactly, exactly. At that very early stage, where they still have input into the idea, because we might know, you know, eighty percent about what you need to know about golf balls, but we need to go hire the, you know, the top five people who understand the last twenty percent about golf balls to really make the idea hit the problem space that we've identified. Um, and it's through that kind of serendipity where we bring in those that CTO, bring in that CEO to drive that particular thing forward, where we don't have the the expertise to bring it all the way home, but we we have enough knowledge of the problem space to know that there's, some, there's something there. And it's a matter of solving the last few technological problems and uh, having an investable uh, uh, leadership. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com Go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Um, can you give us a, an example of one that has run through your operation and and the things that you ran into? Oh, man. Yeah. Let me see. Let's use um, Mangata Networks. Uh, so this is not from Microsoft. This is from um, my previous company, uh, the Invention Science Fund. Um, Mangata Networks is one of our metamaterials uh, spinouts. 
Um, we came across an insight into the physical properties of materials that allowed us to spin out a number of, of companies um, at different uh, bands of the IR wavelength spectrum um, uh, that had the same fundamental breakthrough with regard to the material properties necessary to beamform in a really efficient way. So we could do things like beamform radio signals or beam. What is that? Form... Beamform. What does that mean? Yeah, uh, uh, form beams around. Uh, so, so uh, let me use the example of a cell tower. Um, if you uh, versus uh, like an uh, FM radio, if you're driving down the road and you're getting an FM radio signal, the FM radio broadcasting station doesn't know that you're there and doesn't know to send a stronger signal to your antenna. Uh, than it's sending everywhere else. It's just broadcast on a on a huge like uh, wide space. Um, utilizing uh, beamforming technology, as a lot of cell towers do these days, um, they're able to realize that there is a device picking up the signal at the other end and focuses the signal that they're sending out in order to have communication between the devices receiving and their output. This improves the the, the quality of the signal that you're getting dramatically. Now, as we know, uh, just in the same way that cell signal and, and radio signals um, are on the same IR span, as is light, as is sound, if you uh, understand the fundamental properties of the metamaterials underlying the technology, you're able to spin out companies that, that focus on uh, light or uh, LIDAR or, or radio signals or uh, cell phone signals or... Um, uh, uh, basically anything in that in that spectrum, you're able to uh, come up with a different application to to modify and beamform those waves in specific applications. So, um, so with Mangata, um, what shape was it in when it came to you? Was it somebody show up at your doorstep in the middle of the night holding a six pack of beer and saying, uh, "Let's talk"? Is that how? No, no. So, <laughs> no, so recall, right? We come up with these ideas ourselves. Oh, so we ideated internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we we ran a big what we call innovation session, um, uh, where we brought people. We knew that it would be interesting to be able to have a a kind of material that would be able to do different things as a result of being architected uh, in a particular way, something that wasn't found in nature. So we looked at a bunch of various kinds of problem spaces where where if we had a cool uh, material that could do X. How would it be able to solve a money-making problem in a particular space? Um, and we and we came up with we had a bunch of scientists in the room, uh, a bunch of artists, a bunch of business people, a bunch of attorneys, and we bandied about ideas for a number of days and weeks and series of weeks. Um, some of those we were able to take forward and say, hey, you know what? Our scientists in particular, right? hey, you know what? If we did these sorts of things, if we, you know, uh, this gets beyond my pay grade. Uh, you know, we resonated these materials with a certain, uh, uh, in a certain sort of way, they would form these structures that would allow us to use a non-movable um, material to actually beamform and continue to beamform with something that is moving um, by changing the way in which that material interacts with those waves themselves. Now, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once that insight's had, right? Like, it's the same with uh, how how we figured out, you know, uh, well, how Wilbur and Orville Wright figured out how to how to build a plane, right? Like, wait, we can do this on water. Water is just denser air. 
So how do we think about doing in air, uh, much, uh, which responds in much the same way as water does, except it's a lighter sort of uh, fluid? Um, how, how do we do that? So, yeah, and it was the same sort of thing for us, where we was like, okay, we've, we solved it for radio waves. How do we figure it out for light? We solved it for light. How do we figure it out for, uh, you know, uh, sending uh, telecommunications of, uh, of different kinds? Um, yeah, and, and so Mangata Networks is that application of, the, of that metamaterials technology to satellites. Mangata Networks ends up being a competitor to companies like Starlink. Starlink has a really huge, you know, satellite constellation that they're building around the globe um, in order to drive, provide internet from space. Uh, Mangata Networks, because of its technological breakthrough in the material science itself, is able to position satellites much further out than Starlink is able to. Which, of course, thinking about it geometrically, allows them to have a much smaller network of actual devices cover the same amount of area as Starlink does, which drops their OPEX right through the floor, uh, making them a very solid competitor to something like Starlink. Of course, when we figured out Mongata Networks, Starlink wasn't even a thing at that point in time, but we knew, you know, having a terrestrial network of satellites in order to provide internet. Uh, would be super important um, and useful for the world. And uh, one of those things that was pretty much guaranteed to produce a return once you're able to get that kind of material doing that kind of thing into that particular space. So um, what? how does, in, in what form does the company exist today? Is it operational? Is it making money? Yeah, it's uh, Series B. Okay. And as part of their, their business model, and this is something we didn't anticipate when we spun them out, they also realized that they have a value add in building a a, uh, a companion terrestrial network. Okay. And so they they have a they they're pursuing two different uh, paths right now, both terrestrial and um, uh, and satellite um, uh, that are complementary to each other. They've raised several hundred million dollars in uh, venture capital. I can't remember what their Series B was. Their Series A just tipped over triple digits, as I was a recall. Um, yeah, and they're, they're continuing right along. They're, I, less I heard, they're because um, uh, I'm a few years out from working with Invention Science Fund, uh, they, uh, they've signed a couple of agreements with um, a few governments around the world, uh, to my understanding, including Singapore. Um, and are taking this technology forward. So, uh, you know, assuming they're worth a billion dollars someday, can you talk about like what your cut of that would be? Not you personally, but I mean your your company. Yeah, for sure. So the way that that uh, waterfall goes down depends very much on the uh, how the the uh, rounds of financing went after the Series A, right? When they when they leave the fund. Um, generally at, at the Series A stage, the fund will keep something between, you know, as I mentioned before, 15 and, you know, 20%. Um, but that's in, that's in one sort of, uh, that's in one sort of way of keeping, uh, that kind of equity on the cap table. Um, another way in which you're able to keep equity on the cap table is through royalties around the intellectual property um, that was invented in order to maintain that particular application. So uh, most of the companies that spun out of the Investor Science Fund had uh, had, had two different ways of, of uh, ensuring the fund got paid back in some way. One was a place on the cap table, which would dilute over time. 
The other one was through an intellectual property agreement by which they had a license to utilize the intellectual property within a spe within that specific uh, band um, for the application that they were utilizing. Uh, okay, that's remarkable. So I'm curious as to how you go through the idea generation process. So what, what's your information diet like? How do you find new ideas? I mean, because it sounds like Honestly, the coolest job I've ever heard of. It's uh, a blast. Yeah. yeah it's, it's an amazing job. I didn't even know this was a thing people did. So uh, what's what's that process look like? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. This is my favorite thing to talk about. It, it varies depending on the goals that, the, uh, that you have or the organization that you're working with has. Um, so I'm doing the same thing inside of Microsoft right now. It's very different from what I would do at the Invention Science Fund. If I worked at Amazon, if I worked at Google, if I worked at, uh, you know, DARPA, it would be dramatically different in each of those organizations because this process requires a whole lot of uh, cultural and executive buy-in. Um, and each of those organizations has different goals uh, that they're trying to meet for, for this. So I'm going to explain kind of a, a view of the process that abstracts away from those goals, um, despite the fact that they're necessary for the actual implementation uh, to the process itself. Uh, the process itself um, really takes, and this is probably my favorite part about it, really takes into account uh, the way in which you and I come up with ideas and how we test whether those ideas are worthwhile or not. Um, the first stage uh, that we go into is uh, uh, coming up with the ideas themselves. Now, there's a lot of different ways of going about that. Sometimes you can, you know, have a couple of beers on the back porch with your buddies and come up with what you think are a lot of great ideas. Um, and that could be the case, but it, it becomes particularly more the case when all of you have kind of a common language around the problem space that you're attempting to solve. Say that, uh, you know, you, um, uh, you're all building a house and, uh, you've been building the house all day and you've run into a couple of particular problems. The, the, you know, you and your buddies on the back porch, you've, you've all have the requisite knowledge and kind of understanding of the thing that you're roughly trying to go after and the problems that have come up as you are trying to go after that thing. This makes your ideation, you're coming up with ideas on how to solve it, much richer than if you all were just random strangers coming together and given a particular problem. So the way that I run these idea generation sessions is that I bring all of the relevant material that the group of people who have come together to come up with an idea um, should have before they start coming up with the idea. Um, yeah, the, currently inside Microsoft, for example, I will get all of the market research that we have, all of the uh, uh, work that startups are doing in the particular problem space that we're trying to solve in. Um, and uh, all of the different perspectives from the different people in the group. So engineers, um, uh, you know, data scientists, product managers, designers, um, uh, the different disciplines that will be represented in this idea generating session. And I'll give them all this material in order to, for them to absorb it, to really have that as a fermentation layer on which they're able to come up with good ideas um, and ideas that uh, end up being um, conversant with each other and ideas that aren't. But how do you find those? How do you find those? Like, so, I mean, even just that, by the time you get there, you've done a tremendous amount of work. Like, I'm not even sure how it's, I've got some ideas how I would start, but you know, how do you select the materials? Like you can't just go pull journals off a shelf. You must have some notion of the direction you're heading. So how does that start with yes. you? 
Yeah, a lot of research, a lot of research, and so we read all day. I, I, you know, I, I spend a good amount of time reading, probably two hours a day, I'd say. Um, and then for sessions like this, I'll do a lot of very specific directed reading, um, uh, hundreds, thousands of, of pages in order to prepare, prepare for a particular set of sessions um, across a whole variety of different areas. Um, and not only the technological, but also where the business models are going, what, what kinds of problems the people in the space are encountering. Um, yeah, every, everything you'd, you'd want to know to start out, um, on a journey. Now, you know, that's the ideal state, right? Sometimes the sessions are a week long and I can't possibly have that many, that much material absorbed by my group. Um, and so you have to tone it down a bit. Um, but that, that's the, that's the, the limit that you're, you're hoping to approach, right? So, okay. so several years ago, I was working on a project, uh, called, uh, the anatomy of a startup and trying to, uh, create a systematic approach to, mm -hmm. uh, getting a startup off the ground. Do you, do you, um, use a systems approach for, uh, very much so. Okay. Very much so. In fact, before we have any of those idea sessions, we build out an operational framework for figuring out how to launch something. Because if you don't have a way to launch whatever you're, you've come up with, uh, particularly inside the enterprise, uh, then you've given a, a dead end road to people who have contributed what they believe are their best and brightest things uh, to your endeavor, right? Um, you want to start by creating a bit of a pull motion so that the ideas have a place to go, a validation mechanism to go through, um, an, an iteration and a prototyping in order for that to happen. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah our anatomy of a startup had the, all the different paths that you go down, um, the intellectual property path, you have the legal path, you have the 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 staffing path the yeah. uh well I'll... and yeah you absolutely need that right it, yeah. but you need it you need it later on if you're starting out with the idea all right um, that, yeah and so, so that that idea thing so we come up with thousands of ideas right but then we have to get to the validation process and the validation process necessarily requires a customer if we don't have some sort of customer feedback uh, even if it's in okay. a light sort of way uh then we could be building a bridge to nowhere um and so we bring, we have those thousands of ideas. We don't do any ranking ourselves. We don't do any stacking ourselves. Um, we take some of the, we bounce as much as we can immediately off of customers in very small uh, sorts of feedback loops and experiments so that the customers can uh, tell us, oh yeah, I like the color of that. Or actually the problem I had was this, and I don't see how what you, the idea you have here solves that. But the, the key is uh, fast iteration. Um, and uh, 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 incremental progress. So if it's going to take you a week to figure out a, a way of testing a particular idea, don't start with that one. Start with the ones where you're able to test in 15 minutes or 20 minutes by bouncing it off of somebody on LinkedIn or, you know, handing out flyers on the street. That allows you to take the idea, give it a little bit of validation outside of the group that came out with the, up with the idea because we all love our darlings and because it's hard for us to see the problem, right. uh, you know, from our, uh, from the customer's perspective. Right. Uh, and at a certain point in time in that, in that prototyping, that validation methodology space, you say, do you want, 
it's worthwhile to start solving all the company problems around this. And that's exactly where your, where your startup roadmap comes in. Because, you know, if, if you run into any problems along any of those veins, uh, a great idea and some customer validation uh, uh, it doesn't, does not a business make. So, right, right. <laughs> Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Uh, what are what are some innovations? Are, are there any innovations you've seen in uh, business plans or funding mechanisms or anything like that? That's sort of a, a hobby horse I like to look into periodically. It's like, how is it that these companies get formed and structured? And there's been a, like OpenAI has been in the, or uh, yeah, OpenAI has been in the news for their kind of like goofy and hard to reason about structure. So I'm just curious as to like on the funding side, the plumbing, all the, all that. Uh, has anything yeah. cool come through? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I'm a huge fan of the LLC, uh, just generally. I think that was a great innovation. What is it now? 10, 15 years ago, it started becoming really popular. Um, yeah. I, I think that's great. I mean, the S&C Corps, I think, are, are great uh, innovations for particular kinds of business models. Um, uh, but the one that that's actually been most on my mind, particularly in the last 6 to 12 months, um, as I've been working with startups, is... Um, revenue share ways of raising capital i i i mean i think i can strongly say this that i that venture capital post the era of um zero percent interest rates is going to go through some fundamental changes in the next well already has in some ways but it's going to go through some more in the next couple of years i anticipate that startups raising around um a revenue share model are going to see a lot more success than um, uh, than going the traditional venture capital route that used to happen of you know the running through your series and and you know the CEO getting the Bentley at the Series B and that sort of thing. I don't think we're in that sort of monetary policy era anymore, and 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 venture capital is going to have to refactor um, to really understand that because they, they've been in that paradigm since '08. Um, that's one. Two, I think that actually is great news for founders because they're able to keep more of their cap table as a result of that. Um, and also they're going to be able to focus more on what they've always wanted to do, which is solving the customer problem rather than adding in a bit of, um, a different point of view, um, in terms of where the company direction goes from, from the perspective of the venture capitalist. No, I mean, good venture capitalists always uh, align their interests with solving the customer problem, but uh, not not everybody's a good venture capitalist out there. And, and in the end, the venture capitalist's incentive is around the um, spread of the portfolio, not necessarily the, su the success of any particular uh, venture within it. Um, and as a result, they're in some ways uh, have divided interest from the founder themselves. Um, and the problem and the solution that the founder is trying to bring forward. Um, so while this paradigm shift might be kind of a rough one for, you know, a year or two or, or three, uh, as, as founders kind of wrap their heads around that, um, and, uh, venture capital firms do too. Um, I think 
I think in the end, it still ends up serving the interests of founders um, in a really deep and interesting way. So, yeah, it sounds like it gets rid of the principal agent problem by just routing around it all together and just sort of like completely removing the conditions under which it would arise. Yep. Yeah, that's my theory, at least. We'll see how it plays out. <laughs> that's so, really cool. So what's, what's the next hot technology that uh, is catching your attention? Um, <laughs> uh, so cyborgism? You know, you know, I, 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 so, so there's, you know, I, I have to say AI at least once during every conversation or else uh, Microsoft will fire me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I feel like, you know, that, that, um, uh, in fact, I, 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 uh, just heard Satya talking about it, uh, today. I feel like if we take the challenge appropriately, that we're in the era of where we can make machines understand us rather than us, I have to understand machines. So that's a really broad brush to paint with, right? Um, right now we're still like, you know, pouring through our articles on prompt engineering and figuring out what this like, you know, poking at the chat GPT thing and trying to make it do something other than make funny images or, you know, uh, poems in the, uh, in the style of Donald Trump or whatever. But um, I think it actually can be a modality of human thought. A, 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 a true companion for us as we, uh, you know, bump about the world um, using our, our our mighty brains, which still are very mighty. Um, but it's the kind of intelligence that we're not used to. It's, it's one that was that's strange to us, and we don't really know how to incorporate it into the things that we uh, do routinely as humans. And so it, it remains a sort of strange thing that we poke at and make do funny things because we don't really understand its full capabilities or the way in which we should interact with it. But the way with, with uh, you know, the cost of compute dropping, the efficiency of models rising, I see in the next couple of years, the machine being able to respond better to the way in which we think rather than the way in which we think having to shift in order to respond to the machine. Ah, yeah. Yeah. You, you may recall, in fact, uh, you know, when, when Google came out um, with the search engine, I remember having to think differently in order to get the kind of answer that I wanted out of the Google search engine. Right. And, and, it, and it became more ubiquitous. And now, now I kind of think that way all the time, which is unfortunate, right? Because now I spend more time on my phone because I'll just, <laughs> I'll just come up with a question like, oh, yeah, I know what could, I could get an answer to this in minutes. Uh, but. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to that shift uh, because it'll, it'll be it'll enable us to to um, uh, come to better insights, to to uh, longitudinally become better people, and and pursue the things that we hold uh, dear by working with a companion that we've uh, asked to help us along that journey. No, not we made it right. That humans made it, which means that we could also ask it to do terrible things and help us do terrible things along that journey. Um, but at least the, the potential's there as it is with any other tool. Yeah. I, I, I end up spending a lot of time talking about buddy bots, um, that you wake up first thing in the morning and you start talking back and forth with your buddy bot. Yeah. That, that in having great conversations with, uh, something that begins to understand who you are, what you're motivated by, what, what's of interest to you all of the things that are become important yeah. uh, in your life. And then 
um, it can help hold you accountable. It can mm -hmm. um, encourage you. It can actually come up with uh, new approaches to the problems that you're working on. Um, and uh, can it can actually coach start to coach you on um, if you would have said this or done that, you would have gotten a better response, uh, that sort of thing. And so that, that opens the door for lots of other types of bots that I think mm -hmm. be um, interacting with in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that time. Yeah, well, what, it, what it, it, it gives, it gives lots of different artifacts or structures, the ability to talk to you, like in the language, it gives it like an expressive interface, a way, a way for you to mm -hmm. query it back and forth. And so, you know, I, I think you're going to see more people building like specialized applications around therapeutics with it or performance enhancement. Mm -hmm. Some of the things Thomas was talking about, uh, I think you're going to see all those dynamics play out, but also, you know, it trained on personal knowledge graphs or trained on your web history or, mm -hmm. or train, or you just interact with it a lot and it kind of like salts it, it, it seasons it, you know, and then it kind of learns you and then it's a Spanish mm -hmm. or whatever. And like, it's interesting because I have a six-year-old daughter who's uh, super into it, right? She, she really likes talking yeah. to ChatGPT. And she'll ask if she can talk to the phone and then I'll give it to her and she'll, she'll run off and she'll say, I'm missing, you know, my mom, why is she not home? And the, and the, the bot will kind of talk to her. Uh, but it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse of what the next thing's going to be like. And I think the, 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 the voice is the next platform people are onto something because the other day she was playing around with my computer, my just desktop computer. And she said, can I talk to this? She, after like two minutes, she was like, can I talk to this? Will it understand me? It's just, it's a very natural way for her to interact with it. And it gives rise to these like interesting situations. Like the other day she was uh, talking to it and I was trying to to wrap it up. Right. I kept telling her it's time to go to bed. It's time to go to bed. And she wouldn't listen to me. So finally I, I raised my voice a little bit. I was like, it's time to go to bed and ChatGPT interrupts and she, and it goes, okay, it sounds like it's time for bed. I'll always be here to talk to you. But like it inserted itself right into the interaction in a totally seamless and perfect way. And I was like, these are yeah. new primitives. Some something really interesting is happening yeah. with this. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. Uh, yeah, particularly as we get better at shaping the context in which it's operating, right? Right, right. Like, Fine tuning or like, retrieval, augmented generation, all of that exactly. Stuff. Or, yeah, or, or even or even exactly. Yeah, and and telling the bot like, hey, every time you interact with this. Uh, person here know that it's my six-year-old child and here's the things that i you know that, that i think it would be great if you it, that uh she should learn or uh end by 8 p.m or you know all of those sorts of things that that are very simple for it to uh operate on uh but provide so much um uh, uh reassurance and like context for the way in which we want to work with another intelligence you know so how, yeah. how long before bef how long before we no longer need to read and write um, that we can talk back and forth to these things and um, it, it knows what we're working on and uh, I have a friend who claims that by 2050 the literacy will be dead. Um, and yeah, I'm wondering if that's actual thing that's actually possible. Um. So I, I totally understand where the where the thought comes from, and I think it just I think it depends on what we decide to do with it, right? Well, when when writing came out in ancient uh, Greece and ancient Mesopotamia, 
um, there were documented uh, accounts of uh, the uh, of folks saying this will destroy our ability to memorize, um, and they weren't wrong, right? Uh, there, there, there's accounts of ancient uh, Greeks being able to, um, uh, you know, walk from Athens to Sparta uh, with a different person spending time with them every hour of the trip. Uh, and then they would be able to recite back the stories that that person said in reverse order when they walked on the way back. Uh, a feat of memory that, you know, few of us would be able to do. But when you don't have the written word, then the, you develop that. So it's the same sort of thing, I think. Um, uh, with how we utilize this technology, uh, we can hand over it, hand over to it, um, uh, the key features of our rationality and the key features of our intelligence um, uh, that we, uh, if we want to, you know, they, like, will it be able to text my wife and my kids and mostly, you know, cover 80, 90% of the job that I do, ensuring that you know, they have corn dogs for dinner or that, you know, you know, uh, that Mia gets to tap on time or, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no doubt about it. Um, will they be able to, you know, will it be able to operate in the moment, um, uh, with all of the context that I have and kind of the human connection that we have together or, Will I, with the knowledge that it's able to give me, like, hey, you know what? The last interaction you had with your daughter, Mia, um, given what we know about her, you know, in this in this future state when it knows it has a whole lot more context about my family and the different things which we're operating in, where each of us is at in a, you know, a psychological and neurological format. Maybe you could try this technique from, you know, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, and this might have like enrich your sort your understanding of your daughter and your interactions with her. But that's the that's the state that I I think that we should uh, as humans kind of challenge ourselves to pursue, which is don't give the things that um, we find enjoyable and useful and enriching over to the machines completely. Or else we'll find ourselves on a treadmill inside our house, uh, watching a movie instead of, uh, you know, uh, running around the park with our dog and our kid in the stroller. Yeah, <laughs> you, you want to maintain contact with the world in your life. You Like, even as it becomes easier and easier to outsource a lot mm -hmm. of those things. Some of those things are just what yes. worth doing because that's what good lives are made out of is moments like that. That's part of the, yes. just the tapestry of it all, right? And, and they just have to be lived. Exactly. That's, that's what they are, right? And you wouldn't want to outsource yes. it. Uh, but I, I completely but agree. There are, I think there's a lot. It's our choice, though. Yeah, and I, I think there's lots of potential to use it in humanizing ways, like ways that make us more creative or more expressive. And I know a former podcast guest uh, here with us, uh, Gina Gordon, has put together a uh, course that exploits, I think it's ChatGPT or one of these models through prompt engineering to make it into a therapist. So she's a psychologist, and it's it's all about like unearthing deeper insights and in, into how you operate and what you value and how to get more out of your life. And I was like, that's just really, that's great. Like that's, it's a really, really good use case. That technology is scaling that out. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah. 
Yeah, in particular, like uh, literacy, I think is interesting too because lit- uh, like reading and writing ends up being a way of um of living inside of other people's heads and meeting people across time that I don't think we'll be able to replace in um, uh, definitive ways. Um, in many ways, right, writing ends up being a way of, of thinking where you don't necessarily have the uh, solution or the insight that you think you do until you've actually written out um, an explanation of what you're trying to do. I, I think there's an anecdote from Einstein that said that he... Um, he understood the theory of relativity two weeks before he is able to write it down uh, because there's kind of a secondary insight of expression that comes through the way that we as humans uh, simply operate. And so I don't I don't think any of those things are going away. I think that we have a a uh, another intelligence on which to inscribe them. Yeah, it's like you're you're sculpting yourself internally when you read and write in, in a way. It's like there's something unique about mm-hmm. that way of processing the information that's especially powerful and uh now i think even with advanced ai like i i take a lot of notes by hand i still do i see a lot of other people doing it as well it's very popular like it's making a resurgence in in some places even like cursive handwriting and stuff like never that. Left. yeah yeah i've got a, a zettelkasten thing i'm building over there um yeah so i i think that there, there's something special about that and uh, books too there's there's something about that experience that i think a lot of people really like and i, I have a hard time imagining it's going to go away by 2050 the day could come when the voice interface is so good that it is kind of superfluous. It's just literally always hovering and ready to talk to you or project images onto your retina or something like that. If it's just like, you know, an extended mind, then maybe there's not much point, you know, but uh, I, I suspect we're a ways away from that. Well, and it's not fast enough. You know, I can I can read like five, six hundred words a minute and I can't listen that fast, you know. So, right. Yeah. Right. So so what's next for you, Taylor? Are you uh, planning on being the next CEO of Microsoft? No, no, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. See, because it's all about growth, then, right? I'm I'm a zero to one guy. Like you know, get me back in the trenches, coach. Back in the trenches. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I love Microsoft. I'll, I'll definitely be here another few years. Um, uh, knock on wood. Um, but yeah, after this, I plan on leaving to, um, uh, join a venture studio, uh, in the deep tech space. I really think that all of our software, uh, breakthroughs over the last couple of decades have been phenomenal, but what they're, what in particular AI in the last, uh, year or two is showing me is that we're going to have fundamental breakthroughs in some of the core scientific problems and material science problems, um, and deep tech sort of problems that I think we're going to need to build on. Um, and so I'm really looking forward in particular to getting into the space between um, hardware and uh, uh, interfacing with uh, human biology. All right. But, you might want to listen to, to our episode 102 where we get awesome. in. Yeah. Uh, we, we get into designer babies and the guy that's actually working on uh, the genetic engineering that'll take us there. Interesting, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Right. Um, HSU or Sue or Doctor Shoe? Yeah, Steve Steve Shoe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a that was a really good episode. Yeah, and also the one with uh, a couple episodes back with the guy that did all the uh, 
like quantitative analyses on blood and blood markers. And they, they, they claim that they, they can basically detect all, uh, all kinds of different diseases, like decades in advance, like the markers are all there. It's just, they're very subtle. And they developed this like really powerful technique for detecting it all. And it's not oh, like, that's fascinating. It's not like Elizabeth Holmes. It's totally different. Yeah. I asked, I asked him, <laughs> but, but is it like Gattaca? Did you ask that? Oh, that, that movie was just before I started watching science fiction. So I've never actually seen it. I'm familiar with it, but I've never, I haven't actually seen it. Oh, <laughs> uh, you should, you should watch it. You should watch it. Then you can start growing yeah. a beard like mine. Is that right? Oh, is that gonna is that is that, is that what it's gonna take to finally push me over the edge and become? Yeah, it'll do it. You know, do it. special combs and stuff for it. No, actually, I just use a detangler brush in the shower. It works out just great. Just rasp. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, I was gonna say you look like uh, Roman Yampolsky. He's uh, another guy we interviewed on AI Safety. Oh, very nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like I bet that fellow. Uh, he gets around. Yeah, he's. You probably recognize him if you saw him. He's got a very Rasputin beard. Uh, do you have uh, any final? You have any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Um, I don't think that we as humans um really can make a technology that we can't misuse, and that uh, yeah, we're we're at our best when we remain human while utilizing our technology that's the thing that's always kind of spurred us forward um uh kind of keeping that spark alive and and really building uh the bonds between each other as a human community um and that's that's the reason why we develop technology not the other way around so yeah hold on to that well that's magnificent but thanks so much this was very enlightening we really appreciate your time and good luck in future ventures Thank you. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Have a good one. Thanks, Taylor. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.